Thank you, Stacy. Uh, well, most of you know that I have three kids, uh, my oldest Benjamin, middle Hannah, youngest Abigail, and there's actually uh, nine and a half years, almost 10 years between Benjamin and Abigail. So growing up in our house, you would every now and then hear from the younger ones, uh, that's not fair. It's not fair that he gets to watch that movie and we're not allowed to. Or it's not fair that he doesn't have the same bedtime that we do. Or it's not fair that he gets a cell phone and we can't have one. And, you know, sometimes you get tired of saying, yeah, well, you know, there are 10 years between you. And when you get to be older, you'll get some of these same privileges. And so you just say, you know what? Life's not fair, right? Life's not fair. And although psychologists and sociologists would say that's not the right answer, I would find myself saying it every now and then. And you know, life's not fair isn't only true for kids, but it's true for adults too. It's true for me. Uh, there are things in this life that just aren't fair. And one of them is that I want to be really smart. Like smart, like Pastor Mike type smart. I mean, I can study something for three weeks and feel like, okay, I've got this, and it takes him like 30 minutes, or he already knew it all. I feel like I'm never going to be able to catch up. It's not fair. Or, you know what? I want to be, I really want to be beautiful. I would love to be a beautiful woman. Uh, years ago, it was around the same time of year, 4th of July, uh, we had a neighborhood block party. It was in Costa Mesa, and you could do fireworks. And something was missing. We needed something. So I told one of the neighbors, hey, I'll go send my son to go get that. And he said, that's a great idea. Because, you know, kids, they pretty much get whatever they want. He said, kids and beautiful women. And then he looked at me and he said, can you imagine what it would be like to be a kid or a beautiful woman? I have no idea, dude. Thanks for reminding me. You know what else? I would love to be rich, like to have a ton of money. And not because I want to buy really expensive handbags and stuff, but I want to be able to do whatever I want to do. Enjoy all the experiences and opportunities that there are out there. Uh, like I just read this month that there's a vacation there, well, yes, there's a vacation that is planned by Disney Adventures, if you've heard of them, and this one was called Disney Parks Around the World, a vacation package, a private jet adventure experience. Uh, it was a 24-day, six-country-spanning, all-inclusive vacation to every single one of the 12 Disney theme parks around the world. And you get to go aboard a private jet with 68 meals included, VIP access, exclusive tours, and special guests. And while you're at it, you get to visit the Taj Mahal in India, the Sphinx and the Pyramids of Giza in Egypt, and the Eiffel Tower in France. So I texted my kids, I've got our next family vacay. <laughs> the only problem was it's $110,000 per person. 
And you know what? They opened it up pre-sale to those who had been on two past Disney adventure experiences, and it sold out before it ever was made offered to the public. That's not fair, right? So all these things, this desire to be brilliant or to be beautiful or to be wealthy, I don't have those things, and those things feel like they're just not fair. So what do we do when life's not fair? I mean, not just things about, you know, wanting to be smart or beautiful or rich, but when life is really tragically unfair, when we wonder, as we sit on our beds at night, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? This just doesn't seem fair. God, what is it that you're doing? And as we overview Job 3 through 37 today, uh, I think we're going to pull away some truths that will help us to adjust our thinking and our attitude and respond right when life truly isn't fair. So open your Bibles to the book of Job, and I'm going to begin by just reminding you of where we started last time, because if we don't have these truths uh, cemented in our mind, it won't allow us to see the truths that are in chapters 3 through 37. So the first thing that we saw last time, our first point actually from last time, was that we needed to realize that Job was a godly man. And that's super important that we remember that as we travel through the next 37 chapters. Uh, God described Job twice in the first two chapters as one who was blameless and upright, feared God, and turned away from evil. And then we saw that uh, Satan got an audience with God, and he accused, he accused Job of loving God for the stuff and he accused God of bribing Job. So God let uh, this great experiment happen to Job where all sorts of tragedy befell him to prove that God was right and Satan was wrong. And our second point from last time was that we had to admit that it was God who initiated Job's great suffering. Uh, it was God who said twice to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Uh, God knew that Satan went around through the earth seeking whom he would devour. And God said, put your attention on my servant Job. And God was the one that initiated these things. And as a result of this experiment, this test, Job lost all of his belongings he lost his children, all 10 children, and he lost his health. And he was in a horrifically broken place. And yet he did not curse God. He loved God. Even when everything was taken away, he loved God above all else. And that was our final point from last time. Even after his wife gave up and suggested that Job do what Satan said he would do, that is, curse God, and die, he said to her in Job 121, his response to all these things, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. Yahweh gave and Yahweh is taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Well, remember news traveled far and wide of all this tragedy that had befallen the great Job. 
uh, the greatest man in the East, as the text had said. And his three friends who lived in different areas made an appointment to come together and to comfort him. When they saw him, they were overwhelmed with grief. And Job 2.13 says that they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So there was silence for a week. And then we travel into Job chapter 3, which is where we'll pick up today. Job chapter 3, let's look at the first four verses. After this, the seven days of silence, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. And then if we move down to the 20th verse of Job 3 and look at Job 3, 20 through 26, it says, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? whom God has hedged in. For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. So Job expresses here to his friends that he is in horrific and tremendous pain. He is in a lot of pain. And as we read through chapter 3, as we read through it, did Job curse God? No, he didn't. He cursed the day of his birth. Uh, in fact, Job 3.3 3 says that he cursed his conception, revealing that human life takes place at conception. And he said to his friends, I am in so much pain, it would be better for me if I had never been born than to have to experience and endure this horrific suffering. And you know, we need to know what Job needed to know when we're in a lot of pain. Point number one, we need to know that God is wiser than you. You need to know that God is wiser than you. When you are experiencing circumstances that aren't fair in this life, Know that God is wiser than you. Uh, in chapter 3, six times Job says, why, 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 why? He's saying, what is the purpose of all of this? What is God doing here? Because this makes absolutely no sense to me. And so he calls out with, you know, this longing for purpose or this longing for a reason as to why this happened. And, you know, we often do the same thing when we are in great pain, when life isn't fair. We say, God, why? Why is this happening? What is the reason for this? What is the purpose for this? And, you know, sometimes it's not even just our own suffering that causes us to ask why. 
A lot of us, if we're honest, have, even if it's just within the confines of our own mind and we've never expressed it to anybody, we've asked why to God when we think about things like hell and eternal destruction. I mean, think of a passage like 2 Thessalonians 1.9. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 talks about those who have rejected Christ those who have not been made right with Jesus through the gospel. And it says that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when we hear that, when we think about that, eternal destruction forever shut out from the presence of God, adding what Jesus said in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, we might think, you know, if or because or since God knew that this was all going to happen, God knew that people, that many people, would spend forever shut out from his presence. Why? Why did he ever start all of this? Why did he ever even create man? Why was there a birth of humanity in general? if we knew it was going to end in such a tra tragic and terrible way. And then, you know, it starts to creep into our mind the thinking, if I were God, if I were God, I feel like I would be a little more kind, a little more loving, uh, more wise than this. And we can begin to feel like Job when we hit a wall in our thinking and we don't understand what God is doing. But we have to remember, it's so important that we remember that we are not more advanced in any of the attributes of God than he is. That is absolutely illogical and impossible. There's no possible way that we could be more kind, more loving, more wise than God. It's impossible. I went a couple weeks ago on a family vacation to Palm Springs. No Disney adventure, but Palm Springs. And we rented a house. With, it was a nice house with a pool, and the whole family was able to come. So my granddaughter was there, and we got her some pool toys. And one of the pool toys was a little bucket. And when she was playing on the side of the pool, I took the bucket and filled it up with water for her. Now, if I had uh, had my family members come out and said, hey, assuming that there's no refills allowed, do you think the water in this bucket came from the pool? Or do you think the water in the pool came from the bucket? No refills allowed. What are they going to say? The water in the bucket came from the pool because it's a lot smaller than the pool. And they would be right. And the same is true with us and God. We're like the bucket. And not only is he like the pool, he's like the ocean. And so we feel kindness, but God is far kinder. We feel love, but he is so much more loving. We desire wisdom. God is the one who embodies and has all wisdom. It's only logical. We could never excel or exceed God in holiness and justice and love and kindness and goodness and wisdom. 
It is absolutely logically impossible and something that we need to remember because life will not always be fair and we can't figure out what God is doing and we need to know that he is much wiser than we are. So Job finishes pouring out his heart to his friends and his friends respond. And as they respond, this book is written in a beautiful literary structure. There is structure and design to the book. And we see that the friends respond in three cycles of speeches. The three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. So we see Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, Bildad, and then Zophar just gives up. But after each one, Job responds again, giving a defense for himself. So scholars have said between Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, it's like we have the brilliant minds of the day coming together at this summit, at this meeting, to try to understand what has happened to Job. In Job chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we see his friend Eliphaz respond to him. Job 4, 1 through 6, then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling and you have made the firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Uh, is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? He's saying to Job, Job, you're acting hypocritical now. You've given out great advice to so many others, but you just can't take it yourself. Why don't you take the advice that you've given to other people? And then he adds in the next two verses, Job 4, 7 through 8, remember, this is the important truth here, Job, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where was the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. He's referring to what we mentioned last time, the law of divine retribution or the divine retribution principle, which was uh, something that people adhered to back then and we might even still adhere to it in our own minds, but it's the concept that if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. And if you do good things, good things will happen to you. In other words, the principle is really saying, you know what, Job? Life is fair. It's not that life's not fair. Life is fair. And this is happening to you because you are a bad man. You're a bad guy, you're a bad man, and you're getting what you deserve. And so Eliphaz's first speech really sets the tone for everything else. And even when these speeches, when you read through them or as you read through them in your DBR, uh, there will be these generalities, this poetic language, but it's all pointing back to Job. 
And we can see his friends using illustrations from things like health issues and sickness and disease and losing your belongings and even losing your children. So they're targeting them all back to Job. They're saying to Job, Job, you are in sin. So the second point here for us is that we need to look at this and we need to be careful when trying to fix others. We need to be careful when trying to fix others. And we're going to see, or we saw that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar went on to hammer Job, saying to Job, Job, you are in sin. You need to admit it, you need to repent, and then all of these bad things will go away. For example, in Job 8, 3, and 4, this is one of Bildad's speeches. Uh, Bildad says, does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. He's saying, Job, your kids were killed because they were in sin. Remember, we saw in the first chapter that Job made sacrifices for his kids. In fact, he said that he made sacrifices not only for external wrongs because he didn't necessarily see anything, but he was concerned that they might have something off in their heart. And now his friend is saying, your kids were murdered, they were slaughtered because they were sinners. They're getting what they deserve. And so far... Uh, Zophar in Job 11, 5, and 6, uh, he says, for example, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that God would show you what's really going on, Job, because we know and you don't, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. In other words, he was saying to Job, you're not even getting close to what you deserve for your sin. If you were getting what you deserve, it would be far worse than this. And you know what's interesting as we read through these speeches? So much of what they say is right. A lot of what they say is correct, the truths that they bring up, even the principles that they bring up. Like Zophar in Job 11 has this beautiful picture of what biblical repentance looks like. And it's a great description. Or even the law of retribution, the principle of divine retribution. There is truth to that. Uh, You do reap what you sow, right, according to Galatians 6. And, you know, if you're bad, bad things can happen. And if you're good, good things can happen. But it's not always true. And it's not enough. It's not sufficient. It's not always right. These guys were wrong because they were saying that this stuff happened to Job because he needed to repent, because he was harboring secret sin. And we know from the preface that that's just not true. So we, like these friends, we've got to be careful when we're trying to fix other people. Because we can get so ingrained in our mind with the way that we think things should work or the way that we think this should look that we can end up using, like they did, biblical truth in an unbiblical way. We can use biblical truths, biblical concepts, biblical ideas in an unbiblical way and end up not helping. 
Uh, think about 2 Corinthians 11.14. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says, Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You know what that means? It means that when Satan comes to us or to others, he doesn't come with 100% lies. Because if he came with 100% lies, no one's going to believe him. But he comes with a lot of truth and then seeds those lies in there. Or he twists the truth. He'll take actual truth and misapply it. And you know what? We saw him do that with Jesus in Luke chapter 4, in the temptation of Jesus. The third temptation there, he took Psalm 91, 11, and 12 and misapplied it. A biblical truth used in an unbiblical way. He said to Jesus, hey, you're standing here at the top of the temple. If you throw yourself down, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Misapplying Psalm 91, 11, and 12. He said, the scripture says he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So do it, Jesus. Throw yourself down. And what did Jesus say? Jesus responded back and said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. No. So Satan took a biblical truth and used it in an unbiblical way. And we can do the same thing. When we're trying to fix or meeting with our friends, there might be someone who is genuinely broken and hurting. And we might be so bent on digging up the root of their sin that we end up just destroying or discouraging someone who really needs encouragement and support. And the opposite could be true. We could have a friend who is so defiant and disobedient uh, of God and his will, and we want to bring them encouragement and hope, and so we just keep focusing on all the encouraging truths, and we don't show them that they need to repent. They need to turn around in their thinking. Another area where we uh, are prone to misapply biblical truth has to do with our husbands. You might say your husband. How does that work? Well, when we say to our husbands, the Bible says you should be doing this, or the Bible says you should be doing that. Well, it's what the Bible says, so it's true, right? The Bible says this is what you need to do, and the Bible says this is what you don't need to do. But the Bible says to us that if we're doing that, we are misapplying biblical truth. Because the Bible says to us that even if our husbands are disobedient, according to 1 Peter 3, 1, we are to win them over without a word. When they see our behavior, we're to model out truth. We aren't to nag the truth into them. And that doesn't mean we can never talk to our husband and we can never say, hey, I think what you're doing is wrong. But that principle of nagging and nagging and nagging at our husbands, even if we're using biblical truth, we're using it in an unbiblical way. We're treating them like children. And speaking of children, uh, we might want to use biblical truth in an unbiblical way with our kids. We might be tired of disciplining them. And we might say to ourselves, you know, God has shown me so much grace. He's forgiven me of everything. And we can see that principle of grace throughout the entire New Testament. And it's true. 
So you know what? I'm just going to give my kids grace. And that's great. Teach your kids grace. But that's misapplying a biblical truth when a child is disobedient. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 13, 24, for example, that if you spare the rod, you hate your son. If you don't discipline your child, it's as if you hate them. And then it says, and he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. You will be diligent. You will be consistent. So even though you don't feel like it, you don't misapply the truth of grace, but instead you teach them grace and you consistently discipline them. And you know, these friends, they were clinging to that law of divine retribution, that divine retribution principle, out of inner fear. And Job even calls them out on this. In Job 6.21, he says, you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and you are afraid. They're afraid because if this law of divine retribution is not true, then they are not in control. And if they're not in control, they can't prevent God from doing whatever he wants to do with them. They want to cling to, if you do X, then Y will happen. Or if you do A, then B will happen, and then C will happen. It will happen, and it will always happen. And that's not necessarily true. So the three friends go on to accuse. Uh, Job continues to defend himself, and it goes on and on. And as we read through the the dialogues, as we read through the speeches, we saw that the friends basically became increasingly meaner to Job. The meanness was elevated. And it's interesting because scholars have pointed out that through all the speeches and all the dialogue, we see one, one of them talk to God. And you know who that was? Job. He's the only one that talks to God through all of this. He longs for the help of his friends, but he begins to transition, and he begins to see that I'm not going to get the help of my friends, and instead he begins to long for the help of God, the comfort of God. He starts to actually long for the gospel and long for Jesus, long for the love that's embodied in the gospel. So the third point for us is see God's love in the gospel. We need to see God's love in the gospel. Let's look at the progression of Job that scholars point out here. Uh, begin with, for example, Job 6, 8, and 9. We know that Job is just overwhelmed with discouragement and pain. Job 6, 8, and 9, he says, Oh, that I might have my request, his longing and his desire, and that God would fulfill my hope that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. He's saying that God would just get me out of my pain. Now, is Job suicidal here? No. He's not saying that he's going to take his own life. And he didn't take his own life. But he's saying, God, I ask that you would get me out of my pain. And I think the only way to do that is by ending my life. 
And then we see in Job 7.21, as his frustration increases, Job 7.21 is speaking to God. He says, why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? He's asking God, I don't know what it is that I've done that's caused this to happen. He knows that he's a sinner. Uh, He's made sacrifices for sin. But as far as why this happened, he doesn't understand. So he's saying, God, whatever it is that I've done, why do you not forgive me? Why are you holding it against me? And he longs for forgiveness. And then in Job 9, 32 to 33, Job 9, 32 to 33, he says, for he is not a man. Speaking of God, he has got the fear of the Lord, right? He realizes God is not a man. He's not like us as I am that I might answer him. He knows God is God and God is right and that's that. But he's frustrated because he feels like he's right too. He doesn't know what he's done. That we should come to trial together. Then he says there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. He's longing for, he's looking for an arbiter, a mediator, one who would be able to put their hand on God and one who would be able to put their hand on man, fully God and fully man. Who was he hoping for? Jesus, right? Yes. He needed someone to advocate for him, to help him, to get this cleared up. And then in Job 14, 13 through 15, we see he begins to long for the resurrection, to long for hope in the next life. He says, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, Sheol death. He says that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed until your anger, wrath be poured out against mankind and sin, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait until my renewal should come, until you transform me, until you resurrect me. That's my hope that you could hide me in death until your anger is spent and then bring me back to life again. Renew me. And then finally, in Job 19, 25 through 27, as he's really at the pinnacle of his frustration and he's been so beaten up by his friends, he says, for I know that my Redeemer lives And that at the last, he will take his stand upon the earth. I know there's something innate within me that knows that God is the one who will be able to work this all out, who will be able to make this right, who will be able to fix this for me. He says in verse 26, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, after I'm dead, yet in my flesh, in my body, in my resurrected body, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. It's amazing to think of this ancient book and how much we see this progression towards the hope of the gospel of Jesus who would come and fix Job's problem for him. 
and how his hope would be found in this Redeemer who would come and one day make all things right. So Job begins by saying he doesn't even want to live. And then he longs for, wishes for the forgiveness of God. He longs for the mediator, one who would be able to place his hand on God and man and make his relationship with God right again. He longs for a resurrection. He longs for the coming Redeemer. It's amazing, again, to see this progression and to know that all of this took place, this great hope, when Job was at his point of deepest dejection and his friends were most harsh on him. He longed for God. He longed for the gospel. He longed for Jesus. And, you know, Job's not the only one. Uh, the others in the Old Testament, they longed for the gospel too. Uh, we see this in 1 Peter 1.12. 1 Peter 1.12, it's an interesting verse, but it's talking about uh, the prophets who revealed the gospel to us, to people in the New Testament age. Uh, it says in 1 Peter 1.12, it was revealed to them, that's the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you. Have you ever thought about that, that the prophets, the ancient prophets, even Job himself, was serving not himself but us in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So the good news, the gospel has been preached, and it was for us, for our knowledge. And then it adds at the end, things into which angels long to look. The angels themselves, as they watched over the, you know, balcony of heaven, so to speak, wondering how this whole plan of redemption would unfold on earth. They didn't know. They're not omniscient. So we have all these beings on earth and in heaven wondering how will God redeem mankind? How will God unfold the gospel? How will this work? And they longed to know those things. And those are the things that we know, that we are certain of. If you're a Christian, if Jesus has forgiven you of all of your sin, past, present, and future, then you know with confidence that God loves you. No matter how difficult your life is, no matter how unfair things are, you can know with confidence that God loves you. And not only does he love you, but he loved you first. That's what 1 John 4.10 says. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his son to deal with our sin problem. That's how much he loves us. All the way to the cross, all the way to death. He gives us forgiveness, the forgiveness that Job longed for. He provided us with a mediator. He gives us the promise of a resurrection and a redeemer too. And we know these things. We know them well. And we need to remember these things. The things that Job longed for and hoped for are known and true for us. 
And even though Job comes to this incredible place of longing and hope, and we feel like, okay, now it should wrap up, the book still doesn't end. The book doesn't end because there are more great truths to be seen here. Now, scholars will point out that the book of Job is written in chiastic structure. Uh, I've mentioned that before, but there definitely is a uh, literary device that's being used in the book of Job to point us to a focal point. Um, a chiastic structure is a structure that they used to use uh, when writing literary forms to, in a sense, highlight a point for us or bold it for us. So we would see, don't miss this. And uh, it's been described by scholars before as like a hamburger, where you have a bun on the top and a bun on the bottom, and then lettuce on underneath that, and lettuce underneath that, and then a tomato, and then a tomato, and you land finally at the meat, at the patty. That's kind of the point that you want to focus on, the bolded point, the highlight point. And the thing is, is that the beginning and the end parallel, and then the lettuce and the lettuce parallel, and then the tomato and the tomato parallel, and we see that structure in the book of Job. We begin uh, with Job's affliction, and we end with Job's prosperity, which we're going to see next time. And then underneath that, the lettuce, we see Job 3, Job's curse. And then we see the lettuce at the bottom right before we get to the end. Job is not cursing but interceding uh, for his three friends. Uh, underneath that, we see three cycles of debate with his three friends. Underneath that, on the other side, we see three large speeches. And in between that, we have the middle area, which is Job chapter 28. Job chapter 28, scholars call this the linchpin or the pivot point of the entire book. And Job 28 is a poem about wisdom. It's a poem about wisdom. It's in Job's final speech, and in Job 28, Job 28, 1 and 2, Job says, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. So he's saying, listen, people love and value silver and gold and iron and copper. And they go to great lengths to get those things. He says they go deep down uh, into the mine. They go underneath the ground. I mean, think about that. Think about what we'll do for gold or for diamonds and how people will tunnel down and dig deep and work hard and get crews to find those materials because they're valuable. And then he says in Job 28, 12, but where shall wisdom be found? What kind of a mine shaft would you have to go into? How far would you have to dig to find wisdom? He says, where is wisdom to be found? And where is the place of understanding? Because wisdom implied is far more valuable than gold or silver or iron or ore. So where do you find wisdom? And then he reveals... We don't find it. Man doesn't find it because it's found in God. Job 28, 23 says, God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. God knows the way to wisdom. He knows wisdom. God has, embodies, and has revealed wisdom to us. 
And then in Job 28, 28, we see this wisdom now imparted to us. Job 28, 28, and he being God, God said to the man, here's the wisdom right here. Behold the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Fourth point for us, when life's not fair, when we're suffering, we need to still maintain your fear of God and your integrity, no matter how tough things get. Maintain your fear of God and your integrity. The fear of the Lord. Job knew the fear of the Lord. He knew that God was God and that God as God has power over him. That God has the right and the authority to do whatever he wants with Job. And that is the fear of the Lord. And that's something that we all must have if we want to be wise. And to turn away from evil, that knowledge will drive the evil from us. We will obey the one that we fear. When we really realize that God is God, he's so far higher than we are. He has the right to do whatever he wants. We will obey what he says with integrity, with moral uprightness through all that we do and all that we think. And again, these truths were already said of Job. So when we uh, begin to elevate our view of ourselves and diminish our view of God, we lose our fear of him. And when we lose our fear of him, we lose our passion for obedience. And the text says at that point, we're no longer wise. We no longer have understanding. And if you need a little boost, a booster with this, I would suggest getting A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. Uh, it's an older book. I think it was published in 1961. Um, it's not in public domain, or I'd send you to a website. But uh, get that book and read it with a friend. It helps to read it with a friend or a couple of friends. And read it slowly. Don't just charge through it. But read it slowly because the book reveals to you the attributes of God, the character of God, the nature of God, and it elevates your view of God. And as your view of God is elevated, your view of self is diminished and you are in a right place. It is a good place to be in. And even if you've gone through it before, I would suggest, again, find a friend and go through it again. Look up all the references, read through it slowly, take a while to do it, and expect to have your view of God elevated. Now, we have to remember that through all of this, especially as we read through these dialogues, that Job needed a Savior. Job needed a Savior just like we do. But the point of his dialogue is that he was not suffering as a result of his sin that he didn't have hidden sin that he hadn't repented of. So we have to remember that. It's not that Job did not sin. Job did sin. But the suffering that he was experiencing was not a result of his sin. And his friends, they said that it was. 
So that's the constant conflict here. They would, were saying, Job, there's nobody would, that would suffer like this if they were not in some gross sin or didn't have some hidden sin. Job, life is fair and you are getting exactly what you deserve. So instead of being shown compassion and kindness and offered help, Job was criticized, he was rebuked, he received anger and frustration, and he was even lied about by his friends. In Eliphaz's third speech in Job 22, 5 through 11, Job 22, 5 through 11, Eliphaz says of Job, is not your evil abundant? Like you're a huge sinner. There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pleasures of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. Wow. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, because of all that horrific stuff you did, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. None of that stuff was true. Job didn't do any of those things. But because his friends were clinging to this life is fair mentality, they began to fabricate things about him. And Job... He responded again with frustration. Job 13, 4 and 5, he says, As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. He was saying you'd be better off if you just sat here and didn't even talk. This is not helpful. The fifth point for us, the fifth point for us when life isn't fair we need to show compassion to the hurting. It's important that we show compassion to the hurting. Job 6.14. Job says in 6.14, He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. You want to talk about fearing God? Job says if you fear God, then show kindness to your friend. Show kindness Show compassion to the hurting. If you don't, you're not fearing the Lord. Now, we might say, but, you know, I read through all the speeches, and Job, he said some really uh, maybe overstated things, some over-the-top and emotionally driven things, and I would agree with you, and scholars would agree with you, he sure did. But it was out of his pain. He never cursed God, but he gave full vent to his frustration and his pain and the fact that he couldn't even answer the divine retribution principle himself. Uh, Job 6, 2 and 4, for example, he's saying here to his friends, Oh, that my vexation were weighed, that you could weigh the pain that I'm going through here. And all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. I've been emotional. I've been transparent. I've been just gushing out, uh, trying to reveal the extent of the pain that I'm in. 
For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. I am broken and suffering and hurting. And this was typical of Hebrew prayers. The prayer, the author of the prayer, would often be very transparent about their brokenness. Uh, We see that in the Psalms, for example. There's 150 psalms. 60 of the 150 psalms are called lament psalms. That's 40% of the psalms. Lament psalms, where the author begins with this transparent brokenness and then comes to a place of resolution and ends with hope in God. So this is normative of Hebrew prayer. The friends weren't able to respond rightly to Job's brokenness. Job 16.2, he says, I have heard many such things, the things they were talking about. Miserable comforters are you all. You guys are not comforting me. This is miserable. You know, and we, uh, we like to fix people. We like to help. We want to fix things. And there's often times, though, that we can't fix things. We can't fix the person or fix the circumstance, and sometimes we need to just suffer together with them, offering them help. How can I help you to get through this difficult time? And that's a New Testament truth. We see that in Romans 12, 15. Romans 12, 15, it says that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we're to weep with those who weep. We're to suffer together with them, offer them help, help them to get through these times. And that's what the three friends should have done rather than round one, round two, round three of speeches. Now, Job's final speech uh, is from Job 26 to Job 31. And that includes Job 28, which we saw was the pivot point of the book. Uh, Job 31 is what they call a negative confession. That's the end of Job's final speech. It's a negative confession. Uh, We think of a confession where someone pours out all of their sins. Well, Job's negative confession, he was saying, I haven't done this and I haven't done that. All the things that you guys are accusing me of, I did not do this and I did not do that and I did not do this and I did not do that. And then there's one more speech that takes place after that. That's the speech of Elihu. And Elihu, uh, he's not mentioned before his speech and he's not mentioned after his speech. Uh, He gives an enormous speech, six chapters long, Job 32 to 37. And he gives his speech because first he wants to rebuke Job. Uh, He feels that Job has been self-righteous. He's listening to Job. And as Job gives this negative confession in Job chapter 31, for example, he says to himself, how can Job say he has no sin? Uh, Job isn't saying that he has no sin. But he's saying that his suffering is not a result of unrepentant or hidden sin. And it's not. And everybody's hitting a wall at this point. Job, the three friends, the visiting guy, Elihu. And then Elihu wants to rebuke the friends too. Because he feels like they haven't done a good job convincing Job of what he's done wrong. And he says that he's going to step in and give the answer that will fix everything. 
Job 32, 17 through 20, Elihu says, I will answer with my share. I will declare my opinion, for I am full of words, and the spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. He says, I've been listening to this, and now I need to speak. Job 36, 4, Elihu speaking again. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. So scholars have many different opinions about Elihu. Seriously, uh, according to scholars, he's either a hero or a zero. Uh, and uh, some would say that he's the narrator and the author of the book. Others would say that he's a guy who comes on the scene uh, and he's not taken seriously by anyone. But the bottom line is, is that you read through Elihu's speech and you realize that he's not really saying anything novel or new. Uh, he again clings to the principle of divine retribution. Job 36.6, for example, in Elihu's speech, he says, He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. And so even after Elihu's speech, we still don't have the answer that we're looking for. And so our last point here is we need to remember that only God has all the answers. When all is said and done, and man has given it his best shot. Only God has all the answers. And some scholars would say, and I tend to agree with this, that Elihu in a way symbolizes us, the reader, uh, the one who will think, well, if I could explain it, I have all the answers. Let me just put it into my words. And we fail. We fall short. Uh, we think we have the answers too, and we just don't. There are things where we have to say that this is not fair, this is tough, this is hard, you are suffering, and I don't have an answer for you. The book reveals that only God has all the answers. And that's why we need to fear him and turn away from evil. We need to trust him. We need to put our hope in Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now we see in a mirror dimly. So that's right now, me and you. We see in a mirror and we see in there dimly. But then in the next life, face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We don't see everything right now. We don't have all the answers. And we have to just be good with the fact that God alone has all the answers, every answer to everything that's not fair, every pain and hurt and trial and tear and all of our suffering. Deuteronomy 29, 29 an interesting passage. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God. The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. 
what's been revealed to us, the things that have been revealed to us, the words of the law. We know what's been revealed to us, and it's in the Bible. It's in the Scripture, and that is there for us and for our children. And we might think the Bible, we're coming to the end of this great life's not fair, and you're going to tell me go to the Bible? Go to the Bible. That's what the Scripture says. And you might think, well, I don't want that. I want the secret stuff. That's not fair. Well, you know, we got to stick with the Bible because it's going to take a lifetime and we still won't even master it. And if we want to know the secret things, if we feel like it's not fair, you know what we should remember? That, yeah, life's not fair. Life's not fair. Uh, think about Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us that me, that you, that all of us, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Dead, lifeless, dead body, corpse, me and you, because we sinned. It says that we were following the course of the world. We were just doing what the rest of the world does. We all, it says, lived in the passions of our flesh. We all did what we wanted to do. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind, the text says. It says we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We all deserved God's wrath. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says is fair. It's fair that we all are recipients of God's wrath. But then Ephesians 2, 4 takes this turn. And it says, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And you know what? That's not fair. It's not fair that Jesus paid for my sins, right? He paid for my sins. I'm not going to have to pay for my own sins. He made me alive when I deserve to be dead. And at that point, we can end by thanking God that life's not fair. Well, we have a few more days to work through Job and our DVR. Uh, you get your stickers today, sticker one and sticker two. Uh, next time, you'll get your third sticker. And if you've come to all three, your Compass Women exclusive water bottle. But even better than that, if you come next time, we get to look at the speech of God, the final speech, the speech of God. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for this church and the opportunity for us as women to gather together, to study, to hear from, to learn from your word, and specifically the book of Job this summer. God, help us all to remember that we are not wiser than you are. And although we may feel that way, we may think that if we were you, we would do things differently. God, help us to realize that our thinking is foolish and illogical, Lord. God, help us to be careful, make sure that we don't use biblical truths in an unbiblical way to ask you for wisdom, just to exercise caution when we're trying to fix other people, Lord. 
God, I pray that through our pain and through the pain of others, we would always see your great love in the gospel and that we would even marvel at the hope that you gave to Job, our friend. God, I pray that you would help us to remember the truths of the pivotal section here in this book, the Job 28:28, that we are called to fear you, to stand in awe of you, and to turn from evil, to obey your word. And as we're doing that, God, help us not to forsake the fear of you by failing to show compassion to the hurting or forsaking uh, showing kindness to our friends, God. And as we're doing that and as we're walking through life, help us to always remember that you alone have all the answers, but you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness through your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus who provided reconciliation for us to you. And so we close our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.